Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in, come in. Yes, it is I, Lawrence Santoro, rap for winter. A kinder kind of Scrooge, warming himself in wool and fleece and pressing hands to the bowl of steaming cider. Yes, yes, it's cold in here with the door open, so come, come in. Come in and snuggle in the flicker of night and tree. This is Tales to Terrify, and we've got tales to tell. First, a bit of real-life horribleness. Cher Eves, our working partner in this Tales to Terrify endeavor, was in hospital earlier this week. The problem? Blood clots. They form, they break loose, they scoot through our various arterial and venous tubes, jam themselves into lungs, hearts, brains, and such. Well, hopefully, by now, Miss Cher has been loaded with rat poison— Warfarin, Cumidin, whatever anti-clotting specifics her doctors have prescribed, and she's having endless rounds of blood tests to see how her blood is balancing, clotting factor versus poison. I hope she's home. All the best, Cher. Get better soon. Rest up and sort out the spreadsheet. Ah, yes, while you're still getting treats and warming drink for the evening, I have one more bit of news for you. David Bradshaw is a composer, singer, guitarist, guitar fixer, and all-around interesting guy. He's married to Robin Bradshaw, who's an old friend of the Starship Sofa and of the District of Wonders in general. She's actually spent some time here in the Nook despite she and David living out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, well, Nova Scotia, pertinent to us, 
David is finishing work on his second CD, Songs from the Former County. Songs from the Former County features 11 original songs and has on it some rather wonderful guest artists, to wit, Carmel McColl, whom Cecilia and I heard play here in Chicago a few years back, Willie Stratton, Wanda Rose Milne, Dan McCormick, Grant Mitchell. To support the mastering and reproduction of the record, David has set up a Kickstarter campaign, and because David and Robin have been such a big help and are such loyal supporters of the Starship Sofa of Tales to Terrify and of the District of Wonders network in general, we have all come aboard to support this project. We all really want to see it succeed. To sweeten the pot for us and for fellow District of Wonderites, David has added a few rewards. The initial goal of 1000 Canadian dollars has been met. But here's the kicker to this Kickstarter. The ever-popular stretch goals. At $1,500, David will write and record a new original song, especially for the Starship Sofa. When he hits $1,750, David will write and record a new original song for us here at Tales to Terrify. And at $2,000, David will write and record a new original song for the whole District of Wonders network. To quote David, From the start, this project has been all about friends and neighbors coming together to make the music happen. Whether you are around the corner or across the world, I want to thank you for considering pitching in to help the final stages of production for songs from the former county. The music wouldn't be there without you. The you in that sentence is us. So, I hope you'll stop by. There are other benefits and privileges that accrue unto donors, so stop by the Kickstarter site the location of which appears on our Facebook and homepages at TalesToTerrify.com, and make a donation. Help the district be fated in song as well as in story. Best wishes, David. And Robin. And now, snuggle up, children, and be ready for thrills and amusement as our resident ghost hunter, Sylvia Schultz, brings you the Christmas edition of her monthly segment, Lights Out. Sylvia? Hello, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. Thanks so much for joining me. I have been having so much fun doing these shows for you. It's such a pleasure being able to share the paranormal with you all. Thanks for listening. For Halloween, I had the privilege of scaring your socks off, I hope, with the tale of the house that isn't there. For Christmas, we're going to do something entirely different. Ghost hunters are a fun-loving bunch of folks. Let's face it, we sit around in the dark asking questions of people we can't see, hoping we get answers we can't hear. We're an odd lot. We pretty much have to have a good sense of humor. 
So, here is my Christmas present to all of you, the lighter side of Lights Out. Ghost stories have been around for thousands of years. I was a classics major in college, and I was absolutely delighted to discover, in my reading, an ancient Roman ghost story. This story was written down by Pliny the Younger around 100 A.D., I found this translation on the Ancient Standard website, ancientstandard.com, so it's thanks to them that I'm going to read this to you in English and not in Latin. An Ancient Roman Ghost Story, in translation from the original Latin, as originally recorded by Pliny the Younger. There was in Athens a house, large and spacious, which had a bad reputation as though it was filled with pestilence. In the dead of night, a noise was frequently heard resembling the clashing of iron, which, if you listened carefully, sounded like the rattling of chains. The noise would seem to come from a distance away, but it would start coming closer and closer and closer. Immediately after this, a specter would appear in the form of an old man, emaciated and squalid, with bristling hair and a long beard, and rattling the chains on his hands and feet as he moved. The unfortunate inhabitants of the house went sleepless at night due to unimaginable and dismal terrors. Without sleep, as it had happened to others, their health was ruined, and they were struck with some kind of madness. As the horrors in their minds increased, they were led on a path towards death. Eventually, even during the daytime when the ghost did not appear, the memory of their nightmares was so strong that it still passed before their eyes every waking moment. Their terror was constant, even when the source of the fear was gone. Because of this, the house was eventually deserted and damned as uninhabitable, abandoned entirely to the ghost. In hope that some tenant might eventually be found who was ignorant of the house's malevolence, a bill was still posted for its sale. As it happened, a philosopher by the name of, of Athenodorus came to Athens at that time. Reading the bill for the house, he easily discovered the price— and, being an intelligent man, he was suspicious at its extremely low cost. Someone did tell him the whole story, and yet he wasn't dissuaded, but was instead eager to make the purchase. Thus, he did. When evening drew near, Athenodorus asked for a couch to be readied for him at the front of the house. He asked for his writing materials and a lamp, and then asked his retainers to retire for the night. In order to ensure that his mind stayed focused and away from distractions of stories about imaginary noises and apparitions, he poured all his energy into his writing. For a while, the night was silent. Then the rattling of fetters began. Athenodorus would not lift his eyes or set down his pen. Instead, he concentrated on his writing and thereby closed his ears. But the noise wouldn't stop, and it only increased and drew closer until it seemed to be at the door and then standing in his very chamber. Finally, Athenodorus looked away from his work and saw the ghost standing just as it had been described. It stood there 
waiting, beckoning him with one finger. Athenodorus held up his palm as though the visitor should wait a moment, and once again bent over his work. The ghost, impatient, shook his chains over the philosopher's head, beckoning again. This time, Athenodorus picked up his lamp and followed the ghost as it moved slowly, as though it was held back by his chains. Upon reaching the courtyard, the ghost suddenly vanished. Now on his own, Athenodorus carefully marked the spot where the ghost vanished with a handful of leaves and grass. The following day, he asked the magistrate to have that spot dug up. And in that spot was found, intertwined with chains, the skeleton of a man. The body had lain in the ground a long time and had left the bones bare and corroded by the fetters. The bones were then collected and given a proper burial at public expense. And since the ghost's tortured soul had been finally laid to rest, the house in Athens was haunted no more. I've just always loved the imagery in that story. The drafty old house, the specter wandering into the room, rattling his chains to get Athenodorus's attention. Then the philosopher, not even looking up from his manuscript, holding up a finger for the ghost to wait. Hang on a sec. Carthago delenda est, six semper tyrannis, semper ubi sub ubi. Okay, what'd you need? My husband, Rob, patiently endures my late nights and ghost hunting and my breathless recap of the highlights of the evening. He doesn't believe in ghosts. As a matter of fact, he wisely points out that there is more evidence for the existence of dinosaurs than there is for the existence of ghosts. To this end, he decided to start a new hobby and form his own dinosaur hunting group. It's our first dinosaur hunt. There's five of us, various large rifles, some fedoras, lots of khaki, and we're, uh, we're in downtown Peoria. There haven't been any sightings in a long time, but we're going to sit here at the coffee shop, drinking cappuccinos, and we're just going to see what happens. We've talked to the owners, they're okay with it, and we might... And at some point go, uh, what, what, what do you call lights out? Basically, we take a five-gallon bucket of blood and we, we spill it on the floor. And then we knock the tables over, hide behind with the weapons out and see what happens. Um, so we'll see if we can get any sightings. Bill's awful excited. He's got a, a new gun. It's a full automatic belt-fed Vickers. And he's really looking forward to trying that out and see how it does. So he's he's set up behind some sandbags in the corner. So uh, it looks like a, another round of cappuccinos are here. We're all getting really twitchy and hyper. We'll see how this goes. The last time I was at the Pollock Hospital in Bartonville, I hung out with a group of ladies who had come down from Chicago to do some ghost hunting with American Hauntings. One of them shared her story with me. My name is Dawn Santos, and after my brother had passed away, um, he knew how I did not like for anything to be on the floor in my house. He w- he knew that it bothered me when trash or 
garbage. So his big joke to me all the time when we when he was alive was to always throw things on the floor to watch me walk behind him and pick it up. So after he passed away, the whole first week, um, we would always hear this clunk clunk in my dining room and a candle just roll off the table and onto the floor. And I didn't think anything of it the first, what, couple times it happened. We were like, that's weird. But then it kept happening over and over again. I'm like, why does this keep happening? So we even played with it to see, like, could the candle just pop out? Could it roll off the table? Is the table slanted? Nothing. And this went on for a whole week. He would keep knocking it out. It'd keep falling to the ground um, several times a day. And then after a week, it just stopped. And now the candles just sit in my... I get chills every time I say, yeah. But, you know, you know, and I tell people that story, and they don't always believe it. They're like, oh, it was probably just a defaulted candle. But no, the same candles sit in the same holders. At my table, so that was his way of saying, "I'm here, and don't worry, I'm safe." So it was a good story. Yeah, it was a good story. It was a fun story. So it was a comforting story. That's why I tell people, you know, I don't, you might not believe in life afterwards, but there's a way. If you're very sensitive and you listen to them saying, "I'm here," you know, they tell you that there. So it's very cool. Thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> The ghosts at the Pollock are known for their playful sense of humor. The same night I heard the candlestick story, Chris Morris, who is in charge of the Pollock, was walking through the building around midnight, checking on the groups of ghost hunters who were scattered throughout different parts of the building. She walked into the men's death ward, moving quietly because the lights were off. She figured a group was in there investigating, until she heard snoring. There are bed-sized benches in the men's ward, and investigators often lie down on them to b- get a better sense of what it might have been like to be a patient there. Chris just figured, hey, it's late. Maybe one of the group lay down and nodded off. After a whispered warning, she turned on the lights, only to find the men's ward empty. Jackie, one of the volunteers at the Pollock Hospital, had her own run-in with the playful spirits in the building. Okay, Jackie is going to tell the story of, of her encounter at the Pollock Hospital with a handsy spirit. <laughs> and I'll, I'll no clean pressure. this up and edit it. Just... Um, okay, um, we had a work night, and we were having a ball. We were having fun listening to music, mm-hmm. and we are having a break afterwards, and all the kids were sitting in the room, and I'm standing at the door jam, just leaning there. All of a sudden, there's a hand on my butt. <laughs> a hand, because there are four fingers and a thumb. And I'm like, I'm looking at all the kids going, okay, this ain't right. They, I, everybody's accounted for. I turn around, nobody's there. And so, okay, that's cool. <laughs> and I've had it happen again, too. Really? In yeah. different circumstances, yes. <laughs> yes. Very playful spirit. Very cool. Yes. yes. Awesome. My business partner, David Youngquist, has a delightful story, one of my favorites, about a Pollock ghost he encountered while simply driving past the building. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, this is about this is about George, uh, on Sylvia's request. <laughs> this is he's an interesting gentleman. Um, I was down to visit Sylvia in Pekin one day, and 
was on a route to go and donate some books to different libraries. And I had not been to the Bartonville Asylum. I'm not from central Illinois, so I'm not real familiar with that area. And so to me, all this research is very cool and very new. And I have enjoyed reading the stories and reading the book as it's come out. Um, not, not let alone publish it. You know, it's been a blast. But, you know, so it's kind of new territory for me. And so when I asked Sylvia, you know, how do I get to such and such libraries? She said, okay, you go up here and you turn left and you go up this hill and you go right past the asylum. I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm driving the truck, and luckily enough at that time I had a truck that was an automatic because my little stick shift would have driven me nuts going up that hill. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going up the hill, and there's these giant, massive buildings up about halfway up the hill. And Sylvia had let me know to put my sensor, my, my shields up, because she knows how sensitive I am and that things get kind of wonky sometimes. So as I'm driving up past these buildings, all of a sudden I get this presence sitting beside me in the cab of my truck and it's an older gentleman and he's not breathing real well you know he's kind of got a real raspy lungy breathing pattern and I'm like hello and he said hello I'm like I'm David who are you and he kind of took another breath said my name's George I'm like okay how are you I'm like I'm all right I'm like, okay. I said, George, did you live around here? Did you live around here? He's like, I was a patient at the hospital. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, he said, I used to farm, but I got tuberculosis and I had to go to the hospital and that's where I died. And at that time, I didn't know that, that Bartonville had a TB wing. So I pulled out my phone and I shouldn't be driving and texting. I know, <laughs> bad boy. I texted Sylvia. I said, did this hospital at one time have a tuberculosis ward? And you, of course, Sylvia texted me back and said, yes, it did. And you gave me the name, I think, of what it Pollock was. Pollock Hospital. Pollock Hospital. And, said, and you asked me why. And I said, I'll explain later. <laughs> so I hung up the phone or got done texting, put it aside. I said, George, why are you with me? And he, he kind of looked at me, and he was this typical old-fashioned farmer. He was wearing a bib overalls, a straw hat. He had a pair of the horn rim glasses, which I forgot to tell you when I talked to you. He had a pair of the old horn rim glasses. And he had been a big guy at one time, but the TB had kind of eaten him up. You know, he had the big knobby hands and the big broad shoulders. And, you could you know, you could tell he was used to a life of hard work. And he looked at me, and he said, well, I don't get out much. <laughs> and I'm like... Okay, it's all I could do not to laugh. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you don't get out much? He said, well, he says, not too many people come by that can see me, for one. He said, and I just kind of didn't want to be here all day. He said, I noticed you going by, and I thought I'd go for a ride. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm like, great, I now have a ghost following me around. And I said, all right, if you behave yourself, you can come with. Okay, you know, just a very agreeable guy. And he died back in the 50s. And, you know, vehicles back then were, you know, they weren't as technologically advanced as what we have now. And so we got to, and my truck was an older, it was a 2001. So it wasn't, and it was just a base model. It had been a fleet truck. But it still got the digital radio. And it still got, you know, the wipers that have the paws. And so he was just 
you know, just really having fun looking at all the buttons and all the stuff on my truck. And, you know, he wanted to know where the stick was. And I'm like, or wanted to know where the where the clutch was and the pet yeah, and all that. I'm like, it's an automatic. He's like, what's an automatic? And I'm like, uh, okay, and I had to explain automatic transmissions to him. <laughs> He's like, well, that's interesting. He said, you don't, you don't have any trouble with this hill anymore, then, do you? I'm like, no. You know, so it's just kind of this weird conversation of catching him up, fifty years. That's fun. <laughs> and, and kind of, and, and he was telling me, you know, what was here and what was there, and you know, this was, this wasn't here before, and and so, you know, we're kind of playing what he died knowing and what now had changed, and so we got around the horn made the turn, went out towards the airport, and he didn't like the, air, the airplanes because it made too damn much noise. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you on that one. And we went to the Limestone Library and got out of the truck, parked, went in and talked to the library director, gave her catalog. And actually, the gal that I needed to talk to was halfway busy because she was doing something with a children's group and trying to run the desk because somebody had called off. Oh, no. And so about the last thing she wanted to do was deal with me. So I said, that's all right. Do what you have to do. We'll talk as we go. So George, in the meantime, had followed me into the library. And he's out in the stacks, and he's out wandering around. He's looking at the computers, and he's looking at the audio equipment, and he's just having a ball. And I'm trying to not say out loud, George, leave that alone. (laughs) Don't touch the computer. (laughs) Don't mess with the radio, please. You know, it's like having a kid, you know, because all this stuff is so cool to him. You know, moving pictures in a box. This is really neat, you know. (laughs) And so I'm trying not to be obviously distracted talking to the librarian for fear that she's going to think I'm a real nut job and keep him from messing with the technology because (laughs) ghost energy, spirit energy, does not mesh well with technology. I have found this to be the case more than once. Uh, President Grant likes to play with computers in Galena, and he's fried more than one. He is not a technologically known person. He's not good with technology. And he, and this is from the gal that works at the depot in Galena. Okay. President Grant has fried more than one computer by messing with it. <laughs> so George is kind of doing the same thing. He's kind of floating around here and there. And I'm, you know, I'm doing like the little kid thing, the parent thing. Don't do it. You know, and so I get, I finally get done talking to my brain. I donate the books. And I'm thinking, I hope I didn't embarrass myself too much. <laughs> and, and you know, said, please, you know, consider us in the future for buying books. And, and she thanked me profusely for the books that I donated and, and everything. And then she had, I mean, she was extremely busy. And so we kind of parted ways. I walked back out of the parking lot, and George is following, thank God. <laughs> I didn't have to go after him. And he was walking beside me, and he was just, just giddy with all this neat stuff that there is in the library. And so we got in the truck, headed back down the road. And I'm like, you're not going to follow me home, are you? He's like, no, 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 I, I'm not supposed to go off the grounds. And and I'll, I'll stay here. I'm like, okay. I said, so how much longer are you going to ride with me? Because, you know, limestone to your place, to where you live and to where I'd met you that day is a few miles apart. Right. And I said, well... You know, are you okay now? He's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm fine. I'm not I'm not anywhere I'm not supposed to be. Yeah, because the Alpha Park Library is actually on what used to be the grounds. Right, right. And you explained that to me later on, because he was kind of I was kind of worried about him following me. And he when he said he was still all right, I'm like, okay, because I didn't like I said I didn't know the history of the place. So we got got going back down the road, and I turned went back down the hill, and as we passed 
the Pollock it would have been. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, he was gone again. Okay. So I'm assuming that, you know, he just kind of, you know, he said, thanks for the ride. I, I had a good time, and he was gone. <laughs> like, okay, that's one of the more interesting trips I've made. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I'm glad you liked it. That was, that was a fun day. That was a fun day. Sometimes, of course, it's not necessarily a building that's haunted. Sometimes it's the land on which a building is built. David shared another story with me about a ghostly farmer who was none too pleased with the changes that had been made to his property in the years since he'd passed on. So tell me about Elmer. (laughs) (laughs) He's a trip. He, uh... Ottawa, Utica, this whole area for some reason down the river, it's got to be something to do with the river and the native background that holds spirits here, but where the the Silver Slipper sits um, is a gentleman's club. The Silver Slipper is a gentleman's club, and it used to be a, used to be a farm sat there years ago, and I've had girls that are now friends of mine that worked there that have said they've seen this gentleman come in, walk through the door wearing bib overalls and a straw hat and work boots and walk in through the door and they would walk in behind and he was nowhere in there but he is, they've seen him walking in and so, and they told me this before I even opened my mouth about it Mm. so it wasn't me asking questions, they found out as a writer say let me tell you this ghost story and so they've actually seen him walk in the doors and nobody's there um, but he's possessive of his property and he still is under the impression that the, his house still stands there <laughs> and and he has come up to me because he knows that I can see him and tried to convince me to get all these naked women out of his house <laughs> because he doesn't know why all these naked women are in my house <laughs> my wife comes home and sees all these naked women I'm going to be in so much trouble <laughs> I was sitting at the bar one night just having a beer minding my own business and and I'm sitting there and you know you you get to know the girls and you get to be friends with them and, and that and there's other ones that are just kind of on the periphery just, it's just a normal kind of gentleman's club and one of my friends had been there and she up and left and went and it was her turn on the, on the stage and I'm sitting there watching and just drinking my beer not paying any attention and so there's an empty seat next to me and all of a sudden Elmer shows up and again, he's trying to convince me to get these women out of his house. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I can't help it. It's not your house anymore. You know, and I'm not carrying on this conversation like that, but I'm trying to discreetly say, you know, can't help. You know, there's nothing going on that isn't legal. It's not your house. Your house is gone. And one of the girls comes up and just wearing a little G-string and stocking comes up and sits in the same chair that he's sitting in. And it was like Daffy Duck exploded. Hey, <laughs> and I'm doing all I can to keep from laughing at this poor girl that just sat down. <laughs> and, and she asked if I want to dance. I'm like, no, hon, that's okay. I'm just here for a beer and I'm talking to so-and-so. And it, after he got done having his conniption, he basically just kind of poof, blew up. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to be, he's going to hate me so much. You know, but it, it's weird. <laughs> It's weird how that kind of thing happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love ghost hunting. 
I love having fun and laughing. I especially love it when both of these things come together. One of my favorite EVP stories of all time is the tale of the ghost fart. My team, Research and Paranormal, and I had gone to Macomb, Illinois, for an investigation. Well, for a tour, really. And we were at the Little Stitches Sewing Shop in Macomb on the square. And we were having just a delightful time racing around the building, lights out, of course, and just wandering around, taking pictures, doing recording. And everybody on the team has their own job to do. Sherry is very, very good at taking photographs. Ursula is our video person. Gail's our tech person. And I did the recording and then turned the DVR over to Gail to work with the recordings afterwards. So Sherry and I were in the back room on the first floor of the building with the guide. Everyone else had gone back to the front room. And the guide said, well, hold on a minute. I think I heard some hangers rattling over on the wall. So Sherry and I are standing there. Sherry's standing to my right, and she's snapping pictures. And I'm standing there with my flashlight in my left hand and my recorder in my right hand. And Sherry's snapping pictures. I'm standing there recording. And all of a sudden, from my left, I hear somebody fart. Now, it's not some pants-shredding blast or anything like that. It's this tiny, polite little poot. Now... I have the sense of humor of a 10-year-old boy. So my first reaction when I heard this was, somebody farted. So I pulled myself together, you know, professional ghost hunter. I'm not supposed to come unglued when somebody breaks wind or anything. So we decided to rejoin the rest of the group in the front room. So Sherry wrapped up her picture taking, and I turned on the flashlight to help us find our way back to the front room, And just out of morbid curiosity, I turned the flashlight to my left. And that's when I realized that not only was nobody standing next to me, I was standing next to a solid wall. I said, oh, okay, I think people need to know about this. That's what you do when you're on an investigation and something weird happens. You tell everybody about it. So we get back to the front room. And I say, all right, I know everyone's going to laugh at me, but this is what I heard. And I described the ghost fart. And I knew it was going to happen. Everyone is just rolling on the floor. Oh, right, you heard a ghost fart. Whatever. Oh, yeah, we really believe you. I said, okay, you know what? I, I stand by my experience. This is what I experienced. And, and that's that. So, that was Saturday night. When we got home, I gave my DVR to Gail for her to download the the sounds and play with them and everything. And Sunday morning, Gail sends me a text. She goes, I found your ghost fart on the tape. And I said, I told you so. I texted back, told you so. That was Sunday morning. And Sunday afternoon, she sent me an email. And she wasn't laughing quite so hard. She said, you have to listen to this. So she sends me two sound files. And I click on the first one. Now tell me that doesn't sound like a fart. I'll play it one more time.
And once more in case you missed it. And then I played the second file. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To me, what that sounds like is a voice saying, Hello? What Gail had done is taken that sound file and slowed it down 300%. And I'll tell you what, the first time I heard that, the goosebumps just started at my fingers and raced up to my shoulders. And I was was not expecting that at all. And... My first reaction was, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to go back to that, uh, that store again. Because, man, now I, now I know there's something there. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, here's something that wanted to communicate with us so badly that she was able to make a noise that came out on the recorder, yes, but also a noise that I could hear with my naked ear. And that kind of made me feel better about the whole thing the idea of somebody communicating thank you so much for joining me for a special holiday edition of lights out for more stories including funny ones about the pollock be sure to check out fractured spirits hauntings at the peoria state hospital and here's a hint don't miss the dirty girl on page 147 There's a Facebook fan page for the book. Just look up Fractured Spirits on Facebook. While you're there, like the page. What the heck? You can also message me through the page. So if you liked this show or any other show, I'd love to hear from you. And if you have funny stories to share with me, share away. I'd love to hear them. Thank you all so much for listening. Here's wishing everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Be sure to join me next time. Who knows what fun tales are in store for the new year when we go 
lights out. Thank you, Rob, David, Sylvia, et al. I was with Sylvia down in Bishop Hill, Illinois, at one of David Youngquist's fall gatherings of authors in that beautiful little town, I believe it was, on what must have been just a day or so after her experience of the the flatulent spirit. She told us about it then, but this is the first time I've heard the rest of that story. It fills it, you know. Happy Christmas, Sylvia. Best to you, to Rob, the dogs, and to all you guys down there in Pekin, Illinois. Fiction It occurred to me earlier this week when the temperature was at one degree and the wind chill was flustering about at minus 15 or so that not everyone enjoys winter. I don't understand it, but people abound who do not like the notion of deep, abiding snow and the moans of midwinter. I don't understand those who prefer heat and mug, summer sweat and roast skin, those people without blood sufficient to heat the inner person who spend this time of year shivering and whining about cold, wind, ice, and life itself. I suppose there are a few of those out there listening now. So, tonight, instead of Christmas chills and winter terrors, tonight I thought we'd serenade you with a tale of sea serpents and tropic nights. Tonight we'll have a tropical horror by the master of maritime terror, William Hope Hodgson. Basque and enjoy. We are 130 days out from Melbourne, and for three weeks we have lain in this sweltering calm. It is midnight, and our watch on deck until 4 a.m., I go out and sit on the hatch. A minute later, Jokey, our youngest apprentice, joins me for a chatter. Many are the hours we have sat thus and talked in the night watches, though, to be sure, it is Jokey who does the talking. I am content to smoke and listen, giving an occasional grunt at seasons to show that I am attentive. Jokey has been silent for some time, his head bent in meditation. Suddenly, he looks up evidently with the intention of making some remark. As he does so, I see his face stiffen with a nameless horror. He crouches back, his eyes staring past me at some unseen fear. Then his mouth opens. He gives forth a strangulated cry and topples backwards off the hatch, striking his head against the deck. Fearing I know not what, I turn to look. Great heavens! Rising above the bulwarks, seen plainly in the bright moonlight, is a vast, slobbering mouth, a fathom across. From the huge, dripping lips hang great tentacles. As I look, 
the thing comes further over the rail. It is rising, rising, higher and higher. There are no eyes visible, only that fearful, slobbering mouth set on the tremendous trunk-like neck, which, even as I watch, is curling inboard with the stealthy celerity of an enormous eel. Over it comes in vast, heaving folds. Will it never end? The ship gives a slow, sullen roll to starboard as she feels the weight. Then the tail, a broad, flat-shaped mass, slips over the teak rail and falls with a loud slump onto the deck. For a few seconds, the hideous creature lies heaped in writhing, slimy coils. Then, with quick, darting movements, the monstrous head travels along the deck. Close by the mainmast stand the harness casks, and alongside of these a freshly opened cask of salt beef with the top loosely replaced. The smell of the meat seems to attract the monster, and I can hear it sniffing with a vast, indrawing breath. Then those lips open, displaying four huge fangs. There is a quick forward motion of the head, a sudden crashing, crunching sound, and beef and barrel have disappeared. The noise brings one of the ordinary seamen out of the forecastle. Coming into the night, he can see nothing for a moment. Then, as he gets further aft, he sees, and with horrified cries rushes forward. Too late! From the mouth of the thing there flashes forth a long, broad blade of glistening white, set with fierce teeth. I avert my eyes, but cannot shut out the sickening glut, glut that follows. The man on the lookout, attracted by the disturbance, has witnessed the tragedy and flies for refuge in the forecastle, flinging to the heavy iron door after him. The carpenter and sailmaker come running out from the half-deck in their drawers. Seeing the awful thing, they rush aft to the cabin with shouts of fear. The second mate, after one glance over the break of the poop, runs down the companionway with the helmsman after him. I can hear them, barring the scuttle, and abruptly I realise that I am on the main deck, alone. So far, I have forgotten my own danger. The past few minutes seem like a portion of an awful dream. Now, however, I comprehend my position, and, shaking off the horror that has held me, turn to seek safety. As I do so, my eyes fall upon Jokey, lying huddled and senseless with fright where he has fallen. I cannot leave him there. Close by stands the empty half-deck, a little steel-built house with iron doors. The lee one is hooked open. Once inside, I am safe. Up to the present, the thing has seemed to be unconscious of my presence. Now, however, the huge barrel-like head sways in my direction. Then comes a muffled bellow, and the great tongue flickers in and out as the brute turns and swirls aft to meet me. I know there is not a moment to lose. And, picking up the helpless lad, I make a run for the open door. It is only distant a few yards, but that awful shape is coming down the deck to me in great wreathing coils. I reach the house and tumble in with my burden, then out on deck again to unhook and close the door. Even as I do so, something white curls round the end of the house. With a bound, I am inside, and the door is shut and bolted. Through the thick glass of the ports I see the thing sweep round the house in vain search for me. Jokey has not moved yet, so, kneeling down, 
I loosen his shirt collar and sprinkle some water from the breaker over his face. While I am doing this, I hear Morgan shout something. Then comes a great shriek of terror, and again that sickening glut, glut. Jokey stirs uneasily, rubs his eyes, and sits up suddenly. Was that Morgan shouting? He breaks off with a cry. Where are we? I have had such awful dreams. At this instant, there is a sound of running footsteps on the deck, and I hear Morgan's voice at the door. Tom, open! He stops abruptly and gives an awful cry of despair. Then I hear him rush forward. Through the porthole I see him spring into the fore rigging and scramble madly aloft. Something steals up after him. It shows white in the moonlight. It wraps itself around his right ankle. Morgan stops dead, plucks out his sheath knife and hacks fiercely at the fiendish thing. It lets go, and in a second he is over the top and running for dear life up the gallant rigging. A time of quietness follows, and presently I see that the day is breaking. Not a sound can be heard save the heavy gasping breathing of the thing. As the sun rises higher, the creature stretches itself out along the deck and seems to enjoy the warmth. Still no sound, either from the men forward or the officers aft. I can only suppose that they are afraid of attracting its attention. Yet, a little later, I hear the report of a pistol away aft, and looking out I see the serpent raise its huge head as though listening. As it does so, I get a good view of the forepart, and in the daylight see what the night has hidden. There, right about the mouth, is a pair of little pig eyes that seem to twinkle with a diabolical intelligence. It is swaying its head slowly from side to side, then, without warning, it turns quickly and looks right in through the port. I dodge out of sight, but not soon enough. It has seen me and brings its great mouth up against the glass. I hold my breath. My God, if it breaks the glass, I cower, horrified. From the direction of the port there comes a loud, harsh, scraping sound. I shiver then I remember that there are little iron doors to shut over the ports in bad weather. Without a moment's waste of time, I rise to my feet and slam to the door over the port. Then I go round to the others and do the same. We are now in darkness, and I tell Jokey in a whisper to light the lamp, which, after some fumbling, he does. About an hour before midnight, I fall asleep. I am awakened suddenly some hours later by a scream of agony, and the rattle of a water-dipper. There is a slight scuffling sound, then that soul-revolting glut, glut. I guess what has happened. One of the men, Forad, has slipped out of the forecastle to try and get a little water. Evidently, he has trusted to the darkness to hide his movements. Poor beggar. He has paid for his attempt with his life. After this I cannot sleep though the rest of the night passes quietly enough. Towards morning I doze a bit, but wake every few minutes with a start. Jokey is sleeping peacefully. Indeed, he seems worn out with the terrible strain of the past twenty-four hours. About 8 a.m. I call him, and we make a light breakfast of the dry ship's biscuit and water. Of the latter, happily we have a good supply. Jokey seems more himself and starts to talk a little. Possibly somewhat louder than is safe, for as he chatters on, wondering how it will end, there comes a tremendous blow against the side of the house, making it ring again. 
After this, Jokey is very silent. As we sit there, I cannot but wonder what all the rest are doing, and how the poor beggars forad are faring, cooped up without water, as the tragedy of the night has proved. Towards noon I hear a loud bang, followed by a terrific bellowing. Then comes a great smashing of woodwork, and the cries of men in pain. Vainly I ask myself what has happened. I begin to reason. By the sound of the report it was evidently something much heavier than a rifle or pistol, and judging from the mad roaring of the thing the shot must have done some execution. On thinking it over further, I become convinced that by some means those aft have got hold of the small signal cannon we carry, and though I know that some have been hurt, perhaps killed, yet a feeling of exultation seizes me as I listen to the roars of the thing and realise that it is badly wounded, perhaps mortally. After a while, however, the bellowing dies away, and only an occasional roar denoting more of anger than aught else is heard. Presently, I become aware, by the ship's canting over to starboard, that the creature has gone over to that side, and a great hope springs up within me that possibly it has had enough of us and is going over the rail into the sea. For a time, all is silent, and my hope grows stronger. I lean across and nudge Jokey, who is sleeping with his head on the table. He starts up sharply with a loud cry. Hush! I whisper hoarsely. I'm not certain, but I do believe it's gone. Jokey's face brightens wonderfully, and he questions me eagerly. We wait another hour or so, with hope ever rising. Our confidence is returning fast. Not a sound can we hear, not even the breathing of the beast. I get out some biscuits, and Jokey, after rummaging in the locker, produces a small piece of pork and a bottle of ship's vinegar. We fall to with a relish. After our long abstinence from food, the meal acts on us like wine. And what must Jokey do but insist on opening the door to make sure the thing has gone? This I will not allow, telling him that at least it will be safer to open the iron port covers first and have a look out. Jokey argues, but I am immovable. He becomes excited. I believe the youngster is light-headed. Then, as I turn to unscrew one of the after covers, Jokey makes a dash at the door. Before he can undo the bolts, I have him, and after a short struggle, lead him back to the table. Even as I endeavour to quieten him, there comes at the starboard door, the door that Jokey has tried to open, a sharp, loud sniff, sniff, followed immediately by a thunderous grunting howl and a foul stench of putrid breath sweeps in under the door. A great trembling takes me, and were it not for the carpenter's tool chest, I should fall. Jokey turns very white and is violently sick, after which he is seized by a hopeless fit of sobbing. Hour after hour passes, and weary to death I lie down on the chest upon which I have been sitting, and try to rest. It must be about half-past two in the morning, after a somewhat longer doze, that I am suddenly awakened by a most tremendous uproar away forad, men's voices shrieking, cursing, praying, but in spite of the terror expressed, so weak and feeble, while in the midst and at times broken off short with that hellishly suggestive glut, glut, is the unearthly bellowing of the thing. Fear incarnate seizes me, and I can only fall on my knees and pray. Too well I know what is happening. Jokey has slept through it all, and I am thankful. Presently, under the door, there steals a narrow ribbon of light, 
and I know that day has broken on the second morning of our imprisonment. I let Jokey sleep on. I will let him have peace while he may. Time passes, but I take little notice. The thing is quiet, probably sleeping. About midday, I eat a little biscuit and drink some of the water. Jokey still sleeps. It is best so. A sound breaks the stillness. The ship gives a slight heave, and I know that once more the thing is awake. Round the deck it moves, causing the ship to roll perceptibly. Once it goes forward, I fancy to again explore the forecastle. Evidently it finds nothing, for it returns almost immediately. It pauses a moment at the house, then goes on further aft. Up aloft, somewhere in the forerigging, there brings out a peal of wild laughter, though sounding very faint and far away. The horror stops suddenly. I listen intently, but hear nothing save a sharp creaking beyond the after end of the house, as though a strain had come upon the rigging. A minute later I hear a cry aloft, followed almost instantly by a loud crash on deck that seems to shake the ship. I wait in anxious fear. What is happening? The minutes pass slowly. Then comes another frightened shout. It ceases suddenly. The suspense has become terrible, and I am no longer able to bear it. Very cautiously I open one of the after port covers and peep out to see a fearful sight. There, with its tail upon the deck and its vast body curled around the mainmast, is the monster, its head above the topsail yard and its great claw-armed tentacle waving in the air. It is the first proper sight that I have had of the thing. Good heavens, it must weigh a hundred tons! Knowing that I shall have time... I open the port itself, then crane my head out and look up. There, on the extreme end of the lower topsail yard, I see one of the able seamen. Even down here, I note the staring horror of his face. At this moment, he sees me and gives a weak, hoarse cry for help. I can do nothing for him. As I look, the great tongue shoots out and licks him off the yard, much as might a dog, a fly, off the window pane. Higher still, but happily out of reach, are two more of the men. As far as I can judge, they are lashed to the mast above the royal yard. The thing attempts to reach them, but after a futile effort it ceases and starts to slide down, coil on coil, to the deck. While doing this I notice a great gaping wound on its body some twenty feet above the tail. I drop my gaze from aloft and look aft. The cabin door is torn from its hinges, and the bulkhead which, unlike the half-deckers of teak wood, is partly broken down. With a shudder I realise the cause of those cries after the cannon shot. Turning, I screw my head round and try to see the foremast, but cannot. The sun, I notice, is low, and the night is near. Then I draw in my head and fasten up both port and cover. How will it end? Oh, how will it end? After a while, Jokey wakes up. He is very restless, yet though he has eaten nothing during the day, I cannot get him to touch anything. Night draws on. We are too weary, too dispirited to talk. I lie down, but not to sleep. Time passes. A ventilator rattles violently somewhere on the main deck, and there sounds constantly that slurring, gritty noise. Later I hear a cat's agonised howl, and then again all is quiet. Some time after comes a great splash alongside, 
Then, for some hours, all is silent as the grave. Occasionally I sit up on the chest and listen, yet never a whisper of noise comes to me. There is an absolute silence. Even the monotonous creak of the gear has died away entirely, and at last a real hope is springing up within me. That splash, the silence, surely I am justified in hoping. I do not wake Jokey this time. I will prove first for myself that all is safe. Still I wait. I will run no unnecessary risks. After a time I creep to the afterport and will listen, but there is no sound. I put up my hand and feel at the screw, then again I hesitate, yet not for long. Noiselessly I begin to unscrew the fastening of the heavy shield. It swings loose on its hinge, and I pull it back and peer out. My heart is beating madly. Everything seems strangely dark outside. Perhaps the moon has gone behind a cloud. Suddenly a beam of moonlight enters through the port and goes as quickly. I stare out. Something moves. Again the light streams in, and now I seem to be looking into a great cavern, at the bottom of which quivers and curls something palely white. My heart seems to stand still. It is the horror. I start back and seize the iron port flap to slam it to. As I do so, something strikes the glass like a steam ram and shatters it to atoms and flicks past me into the berth. I scream and spring away. The port is quite filled with it. The lamp shows it dimly. It is curling and twisting here and there. It is as thick as a tree and covered with a smooth, slimy skin. At the end is a great claw like a lobster's, only a thousand times larger. I cower down into the farthest corner. It has broken the tool chest to pieces with one click of those frightful mandibles. Jokey has crawled under a bunk. The thing sweeps round in my direction. I feel a drop of sweat trickle slowly down my face. It tastes salty. Nearer comes that awful death. Crash! I roll over backwards. It has crushed the water breaker against which I leant, and I am rolling in the water across the floor. The claw drives up, then down with a quick uncertain movement, striking the deck a dull, heavy blow a foot from my head. Jokey gives a little gasp of horror. Slowly the thing rises and starts feeling its way round the berth. It plunges into a bunk and pulls out a bolster, nips it in half and drops it, then moves on. It is feeling along the deck. As it does so, it comes across a half of the bolster. It seems to toy with it, then picks it up and takes it out through the port. A wave of putrid air fills the berth, there is a grating sound, and something enters the port again, something white and tapering and set with teeth. Hither and thither it curls, rasping over the bunks, ceiling and deck, with a noise like that of a great saw at work. Twice it flickers above my head, and I close my eyes. Then off it goes again. It sounds now on the opposite side of the berth and nearer to Jokey. Suddenly the harsh, raspy noise becomes muffled, as though the teeth were passing across some soft substance. Jokey gives a horrid little scream that breaks off into a bubbling, whistling sound. I open my eyes. The tip of the vast tongue is curled tightly around something that drips, then is quickly withdrawn, allowing the moonbeams to steal again into the berth. I rise to my feet. Looking round, I note, in a mechanical sort of way, the wrecked state of the berth, the shattered chests, dismantled bunks, and something else. Jokey! I cry, and tingle all over. There is that awful thing again at the port, 
I glance round for a weapon. I will revenge Jokey. Ah, there, right under the lamp, where the wreck of the carpenter's chest strews the floor, lies a small hatchet. I spring forward and seize it. It is small, but so keen, so keen. I feel its razor edge lovingly. Then I am back at the port. I stand to one side and raise my weapon. The great tongue is feeling its way to those fearsome remains. It reaches them. As it does so, with a scream of, Jokey! Jokey! I strike savagely again and again and again, gasping as I strike. Once more, and the monstrous mass falls to the deck, writhing like a hideous eel. A vast warm flood rushes in through the porthole. There is a sound of breaking steel and an enormous bellowing. A singing comes in my ears and grows louder, louder. Then the birth grows indistinct and suddenly dark. Extract from the log of the steamship Hispaniola. June 24th, latitude in Long W, 11 a.m. Sighted four-masted Baroque, about four points on the port bow, flying signal of distress. Ran down to her and sent a boat aboard. She proved to be the Glyndoon, homeward bound from Melbourne to London. Found things in a terrible state, decks covered with blood and slime. Steel deckhouse stove in. Broke open door and discovered youth of about nineteen in last stage of inanition. Also, part remains of boy about fourteen years of age. There was a great quantity of blood in the place and a huge curled up mass of whitish flesh, weighing about half a ton, one end of which appeared to have been hacked through with a sharp instrument. Found forecastle door open and hanging from one hinge. Doorway bulged, as though something had been forced through. Went inside. Terrible state of affairs, blood everywhere, broken chests, smashed bunks, but no men, nor remains. Went aft again and found youth showing signs of recovery. When he came round, gave the name of Thompson. Said they had been attacked by a huge serpent. Thought it must have been sea serpent. He was too weak to say much, but told us there were some men up in the mainmast. Sent a hand aloft who reported them lashed to the royal mast and quite dead. Went aft to the cabin. Here we found the bulkhead smashed to pieces and the cabin door lying on the deck near the after hatch. Found body of captain down lazarette, but no officers. Noticed amongst the wreckage part of the carriage of a small cannon. Came aboard again. Have sent the second mate with six men to work her into port. Thompson is with us. He has written out his version of the affair. We certainly consider that the state of the ship, as we found her, bears out in every respect his story. Signed, William Norton, Master Tom Briggs, first mate. The thread of monsters from the unknown is always distilled to a potent draft when the people threatened are trapped, isolated from the world of civilized safety and left to their own severely limited devices. We found out about that the first time we saw the film Alien, didn't we? 
If we hadn't already learned the lesson from Night of the Living Dead, or if we missed the message of Ten Little Indians, we might also have learned it from John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, or, or John Ford's Stagecoach, or John Campbell's classic tale, Who Goes There?, which later becomes, in various incarnations, The Thing, The Thing from Another World, etc. Nothing is more terrifying than a band apart, isolated, threatened by overwhelming horror. Tonight's author, William Hope Hodgson, is among my favorites of the now-gone great ones, M.R. James, H.P. Lovecraft, Arthur Machen, et al. I'll give you a URL and let you look up the details of Hodgson's life. It was short, and it was exciting. Many of Hodgson's stories are set at sea. Many deal with themes of the creeping unknown, or sometimes cannibalism, or worse. We are drawn to the sea. Like the sky, it always seems without limit. It holds vast mysteries, embraces distant continents, lands unknown, depths unexplored. It holds creatures of unknown shape and imposing abilities. Being drawn to the sea, the water of which is so much like our blood, is part of being human, I guess. We always want to know what's over the hump of the world— well, by some reckoning, despite his heroic efforts at sea, Hodgson won a military medal for jumping into a shark-infested sea and saving the life of a fellow sailor. Despite that, Hodgson is thought to have always feared the water and finally left it because of that fear. Fear is where horror begins, and in writing out his terrors, he returned to them, perhaps, perhaps faced them. So, too, with us. In reading horror, we face our terrors. But you do have to love a good sea serpent, don't you? A Tropical Horror was read for us tonight by Mr. Matt Cowens. Matt Cowens, not to be confused with Indiana author Matt Cowan, is a Kapiti New Zealand-based high school teacher and writer. His writing has been published online and in several anthologies, and Mansfield with Monsters, his collaboration with Debbie Cowens and the late Catherine Mansfield, has received rave reviews in the New Zealand press. It's published by Steam Press and is available on Amazon and in bookstores throughout New Zealand or directly from the publisher at www.steampress.co.nz. And that, chilly children of the night, will be that. Alas, now you must arise and rewrap your mummy selves and face the wind and, yes, I believe, a bit of blowing snow tonight. If your way home takes you down the way and into view of the lake, please note it is somewhat frozen now. At least the first few hundred feet or so are hard enough to cause breakers to lay down layer after layer of new thin ice. Well, that should keep whatever lake creatures that there are well away from land tonight. All the better, yes? Yes. 
Our lake and its four Great Lake fellows form a rather substantial freshwater inland sea, you know. There are tales that abide. Many tales of creatures that lie in chilly bottoms, hundreds of feet down, unseen except by those who will see such things. Well, keep your eyes off that watery horizon tonight. Trot home, scoot into bed, pull the cat in with you and cover yourself, and never, ever think of the vastness of the deep. And, of course... Steer true toward this night's pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.